0: So it's good to see you guys. We're going to get started with uh, our part two message on the cross. I hope you had a great week. It's always good to see you back here at Community Church. and We're going to be finishing up Luke chapter 23 this morning in our study of the cross. Again, this will be part two. So we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 56, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. But last week we learned that two criminals were actually crucified, one on either side of Christ. And Luke, by the way, who's the only gospel writer to divulge this information, he tells us that one of them actually believed. One of those criminals believed that Jesus was Lord, and he asked to be remembered when Christ came into his kingdom. Amazing. Luke twenty three forty two. As I read through G. Campbell Morgan's commentary on this passage, He had a quote in there from poet Miriam Krauss, and I think she summed up this scene quite well. I want to read this poem to you. Krauss writes, Three men shared death upon a hill, but only one man died. The other two, a thief and God himself, made rendezvous. Three crosses still are borne up Calvary's hill, where sin still lifts them high. Upon the one sag broken men who, cursing, die. Another holds the praying thief or those who penitent as he still find the Christ beside them on the tree. What a beautiful picture that is. Wow. What a way to say that. I love that line. A thief and God made rendezvous at the cross of Jesus Christ. Wow. Even in the throes of death, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, saved a thief from eternal death amazing and still today through the atoning work of christ he gives eternal life to all of those all of us everyone who like the thief are penitent and place our faith in jesus christ that's the promise paradise for those who believe in jesus would you pray again with me quickly and we'll get into our text we love you lord and thank you for this time together as a family as a body of christ celebrating our crucified and our risen lord as we look into the cross in part two of this message today lord please make the scriptures come alive to us help us to see clearly the work that you have done the work that you have completed the work that you have finished on our behalf it's exciting to know that we have a savior like you a savior who has completed it at all And so we love you, Lord, and we pray that through the power of your spirit, you would give us wisdom and understanding as we study together this morning. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, down through the end of the chapter, reads like this. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hand, into your hands, rather, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to, to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all of his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Verse 55. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. All right. So if you would like to do a comparison study, you can find that basically in the last half of Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19, the last half of those three chapters. But we begin our study this morning about our Lord's death on his cross like this from the gospel writer Luke. He says, now it was about the sixth hour, verse 44, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Okay, so the sixth hour to the ninth hour would have been noon to 3 p.m. That's the time frame here. Christ had been on the cross already since 9 a.m. That's the third hour, according to Mark 15, 25. So six hours on the cross. And there is, by the way, I find this interesting. There is, by the way, some extra biblical accounts out there about darkness coming over the entire earth during the crucifixion of Christ. The Bible, of course, is our authority, and we believe what it says, but there's also extra-biblical accounts out there of people saying it got dark in the middle of the day at this time. One of them was a Roman, a Greco-Roman historian by the name of Phlegion. He wrote a 16-volume work, 16 volumes of books called the Olympiads. And that's basically a calendar. It's not like the sport. It's, it's the calendar, the way they marked time and, and kept track of things. He had uh, a history, 16 volumes worth. This guy wrote this. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad on the calendar, an eclipse took place at the sixth hour. And there was also an earthquake. (laughs) I can't prove that that's true, but that's written history. There's extra biblical accounts to back up and validate what the scripture tells us. Now, he got it wrong. It wasn't an actual natural eclipse. And I'll show you why. It was Passover. The moon was full. Okay, and you know, at least... I had to find out. You can go do the research too. I didn't automatically know this, but it's it's impossible to have a total eclipse of the sun with a full moon, right? You can't have that. And so it was Passover and it was full moon. Therefore, this was not an eclipse whatsoever, although it was dark, which is interesting. So that tells us that this was a very supernatural event that was orchestrated by God, okay? So what we're seeing here is that when the light of the world was rejected by the world, then darkness fell upon the earth. What a picture of the human heart this is. I mean, if we reject the light of Christ, then we're going to remain in darkness, won't we? Here's how the apostle John said this. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he writes, "This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. Amen. Christ, the light of the world, the one in whom there is no darkness, yet in midday, darkness falls over the earth. What is that a picture of? our sin that is our sin there is no darkness in Christ this darkness that fell upon the earth as a result of our sin and so as Christ hung for those six hours on the cross things started happening in the cosmos think about that after three hours of being on the cross creation began to now respond to the crucifixion of its creator and of course this was all in perfect fulfillment of prophetic scripture as well amos told us this would happen in amos chapter 8 verse 9 he says and it shall come to pass in that day says the lord god that i will make the sun go down at noon and i will darken the earth in broad daylight bingo that's what happened here at the cross that's exactly what's happening here and then at about the ninth hour Matthew tells us in his gospel in Matthew 27:46 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying "Eli, imai, Eli, lelai, lama sabachthani" that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, this also fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 22 verse 1, exactly, precisely. From noon until 3 there was only silence on the cross. But there was darkness above it. Think about that picture. Guys, only God knows the full extent of what's taking place here during those three hours where Christ was silent on his cross. I mean, we sang a line earlier that's very appropriate. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I can't know the full extent of that. But as darkness came to the earth or upon the earth at midday and upon our silent Savior, what's going on at this moment is he is now absorbing in his body of flesh, the punishment for our sin upon that tree. That's what's happening. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on that tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And of course, you're familiar with Isaiah who wrote in Isaiah 53.7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That's what Isaiah said. So you see, Christ here is now on the cross three hours into the process. And now there is silence, but yet he is still willfully there. He could have called legions of angels. He could have done anything. He could have whatever. But he was willingly hanging there for you and for me. Right He followed the Father's will to the cross. This was settled in the garden. We talked about that. Christ is joyfully there. Think about it like that. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's what the Bible said. He is willfully there. He is joyfully there. And now we see that he is also quiet. He's quietly there. And so when you think about it, all of these ways, is how Christ stood in judgment for my sin. In all of these ways, he stood before the Father, absorbing the wrath toward my sin. Now, he was willfully, willfully there, he was joyfully there, quietly, all of those things. We can accept that as truth, we can accept that as a matter of fact, and we can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, in response to this holy transaction that we see now taking place in the scriptures, that's one option. Or we can reject this as truth. And we can face judgment before a holy God ourselves. Now that's a decision that each and every one of us are gonna have to make, okay? We're all faced with that decision. We're gonna have to decide whether or not we trust Christ as our substitute for sin. Did he pay for my sin or did he not? The Bible says he did. Am I willing to believe that by faith and receive Christ as my Savior and be forgiven? Or am I going to just hold off and stand judgment before God myself? You can make that decision. We all have to. But one thing that will not happen on judgment day is rebuttal. You will not talk back to God. Just as Christ was silent on the cross, you will be silent before God. You're not going to be able to bring up any excuses for your unbelief. Now, you might not stand there willfully. You might not be joyful. You know, I get that before God in judgment. That's true. But trust me on this you will be quiet. You will be quiet. Because the judgment of God is final. So, how much better would it be for you and me to go ahead and die to ourselves today? Turn to Christ in repentant faith and belief so that we can be born again and not face that kind of judgment. Christ hung on that cross as your substitute so that you don't have to stand before a holy God in punishment for your sin. Verse 45, then the sun was darkened. It means it was obscured. The veil in the temple was torn in two, like from the middle. That's what the word uh, indicates. It was torn in the middle. I like what Wiersbe said here. He said, when Israel was in Egypt, three days of darkness preceded the first Passover. That's Exodus uh, 10, 21. Then he says, when Jesus was on the cross, three hours of darkness preceded the death of God's Lamb for the sins of the world. You see the similarity. The darkness preceded all of this. But I want you to notice something here. This is critical. Not only were things happening in the cosmos, okay? Things were now beginning to happen in the inner courts of the temple. Did you see that? Things were beginning to happen in the holy of holies, in the temple. What was it that was happening? Well, I can tell you ultimately what was happening is that access was being granted to everyone into the presence of a holy God. That's what was going on here. Matthew 27, 51 says that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Man, I love that. And of course, the writer of Hebrews tells us that it was Christ's body that was the veil. And I'll talk more about that in just a bit. But the point is, we could never gain access to God on our own. We could never do that because our sin is what has actually separated us from God. And so what we see here is that salvation, God is providing salvation for us, and it's a 100% work of God. This is all God. Salvation is a work of God. The sacrifice is too much for me. I can't pay it. I can't afford that. The veil between me and God is too high. I can't tear it. I can't remove it. I can't reach it. Therefore, God had to tear it for me. And that's exactly what he did from top to bottom. And so as the father accepted now the sacrifice of his son for my sin and for the sins of the entire world, the barrier between a holy God and sinful humanity has now been removed. Amazing. My savior hung on a cross so that the veil between me and God would never be hung up again. There's never gonna be a barrier there again because God removed that. Now, we know that God no longer dwells in temples, does he? Where does he dwell? He dwells in the heart of man, Galatians 4, 6. The Bible tells us that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6. In the, the body of believers, this physical body of believers is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is where Christ indwells. This is where Christ lives, in the hearts in the body, of believers, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And so now the truth is I have continual access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, my savior, which means that I can come anytime to Christ. It means that you can come at any time to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the veil isn't there anymore. There is no more barrier. It's gone. It's been removed and Christ removed it. And now he calls me to come willingly, joyfully to my Savior. You see how all of this ties in? One of the reasons, I'm gonna jump off on a side note real quick. I'll try to get back on track in a minute. One of the reasons we don't have, commun- we don't have church membership at Community Church is because the veil has been torn. Amen. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does the veil being torn have to do with church membership? Well, let me tell you. Christ has granted you access to the Father. Jesus Christ did that. Jesus Christ has given you the privilege to come into his family by grace through faith. Look, there's nothing else that a local church needs to require of you whatsoever. There are no more limitations. There are no more requirements. Why? Because Christ is all in all. Christ is all in all. So if you've come to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith, guess what? You are a member of his church. You have the responsibility to come, but he has given you the access to come freely through his blood. There is no veil. You can come freely to the Father. Christ purchased that right for you by his own blood. How dare any local church rehang that veil? that Christ Jesus, by his own sacrifice, has torn in two. How dare any local church put restrictions upon people in order to become, quote, members of the body of Christ that the Bible never does. The Bible never does that. I've read the Bible. You have too, and I have not seen a membership class in it. In case you're wondering, what are the biblical requirements of church membership? What are those? Let me tell you. Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Every saved person is a member of Christ's church. Guys, the veil is gone. It is not there. Christ removed it and he calls every single one of us to come and be saved. Look, self-righteous humanity, false piety, or even our most precious church traditions. They do not get to decide who can come to Jesus Christ. They do not get to decide how we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the one who purchased our salvation with his own blood can do that. That's it. And so at this point during the crucifixion, Matthew tells us that the earth quaked, that graves were actually opened up. Think about that. Resurrections. The earth is quaking, it's dark. Stuff's happening. And many saints were raised from the dead. The word says many. Many saints. That's Matthew 27, 51 through 53. Now, just look at the effect that the crucifixion had on creation. Just let your mind dwell on that for a minute. Verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Christ was quoting from Psalm 31, 5. From his cross. As many of you know, he spoke seven things, seven sayings, while he was on the cross for those six hours. Luke records three of those. We've already talked about two of them, and the third one we see here in verse 46. But I want to briefly run through these seven sayings for you, just quickly. We won't elaborate. We can do that in community group at some other time or whatever, but it's important that we see what Christ said because it all matters. The first thing was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We looked at that last week in our study in Luke. So those who crucified Christ were not fully aware of what they were doing. They didn't fully understand. Okay? They didn't recognize him as the Messiah. And although their ignorance, it didn't mean that they deserved forgiveness. Certainly not. The truth is none of us deserve forgiveness. And so Christ prayed in the midst of hanging on the cross, in the midst of their mocking, etc., and all of this, and he prayed for them that the Father would forgive them for their ignorance of doing what they were in the process of doing. This is an expression of his compassion. Think about that. How compassionate is our Lord? This is an expression of undeserved grace. Most definitely, it's an expression of his mercy, not giving us what we do, in fact, deserve. Next, Christ from this cross says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He said that to the believing thief. So he gives assurance to one of those criminals that was hanging on a cross next to him that when he died, he would be in paradise. Amen. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what the word says. The reason that Christ could assure this thief that he would be with them in paradise was clearly because he had authority. Jesus could say that because Jesus is God. And because also, even in the hour of the, of the death of this thief, he was breathing his last two. He was coming down to the short rows, right? It was getting close. But he recognized Jesus for who he was, Luke 23, 42, and he called him Lord. And they also believed that Jesus wouldn't stay dead because he said, when you come into your kingdom, dead kings don't come into kingdoms. Only alive kings can do that. And so this thief believed the gospel and he was born again. The next thing that Christ says, he looks down at his mother. You can read about this in John 19. And he says, woman, behold your son. Then he looks to his disciple, John, behold your mother. So Jesus saw his mom standing near the cross. Right there with the apostle John. And he basically commits the care of his mother into the hands of John. It's almost as if Jesus said, John, take care of mama. Would you take care of her? That's John 19, 26 and 27. And he tells us that from that hour, from that hour that Jesus said that, John took her to, took her to his own home. So Christ, even as is dying, assures the care of his mother. It's beautiful. Then what happened? Three hours of darkness. Three hours of complete silence from the cross as Christ bore the sins of the world, as Christ took on the punishment of the Father for my sin. There was silence. Christ was silent, but yet shortly before his death, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is where Christ was feeling the full weight of the sins of the world the full weight of my sin. He was experiencing the full wrath of the Father toward my sin during this moment, during these hours. Of course, this is also a fulfillment of Psalm 22.1. And then Jesus says in John 19.28, I thirst. This is the fifth thing he said from his cross. So Jesus was fulfilling messianic prophecy here on the one hand. Psalm 69.21 says, they also gave me gall For my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And so, by saying that he was thirsty, what he did was prompt the Roman guards to give him the vinegar, which was common at crucifixion time. And he, of course, fulfilled prophecy by doing this. I hope you know that Jesus Christ is the only one to ever fulfill every word of messianic prophecy. He is the Messiah. I like how David. Describe this just because it's vivid. I, I don't like the scene, but I like how vivid it is because it gives us another angle of what was going on in the heart and mind of Christ as he hung on his cross, saying, "I thirst." Here's what David said that moment was like in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. He said, "My tongue clings to my jaws." That's Christ on the cross. So, in one sense, yes, "I thirst." It fulfills prophetic, script, prophetic scripture, rather. But on the other hand, there was real thirst, real thirst. His tongue was clinging to his jaws. And then next in John 19, 30, we see that Christ proclaimed, it is finished. And so these last words meant that he suffered no more. Okay, the suffering was over. The work of the cross was complete. Okay, all of the work that his father had given him to do was now finished, it was complete. The gospel had been preached. The miracles had been performed. The law had been fulfilled quite fully and quite perfectly. Jesus fulfilled all of that. And now eternal salvation had been purchased for all who would believe. Guys, the debt of sin was paid in that moment. There's no more work to be done. Okay, so just like the thief, he's hanging there on the cross. He can't tithe. He can't do anything. He can't be a good boy. Nothing. All he has is faith. All he can do is believe. Why? Because the cross is enough. Christ is enough. The blood of Jesus is enough. The work was done by Jesus, not me, not you, not the thief. And he calls us to believe. Christ completed the work. And then finally, right here in Luke twenty-three thirty-six, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so here, Christ willingly gives up his soul back into the hands of his Father, which, by the way, it assures us. I love this because it assures you and me that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. He accepted the sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 tells us that he, meaning Jesus, offered up himself unblemished to God. And Luke says that he did that in a loud voice. What are we to make of that? I want you to notice something here, guys. After the brutal beatings, after the brutal scourgings, After all of that had gone down, six hours hanging on a cross. He says with a loud voice. I want you to know something this morning. This was a voice of victory. This was a voice of victory. His voice after all of that was still loud, meaning it was strong. It was resolute. It was purposed. He was declaring something. He wasn't decrying anything. He was declaring the victory. I love that. From the very first words of Christ that we see way back in Luke chapter 2. You'll remember Jesus was, you know, he stayed back in Jerusalem early on. His parents go back to find him. And he's like, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Until that moment, until these final cries of his cross from his cross of it is finished and father into your hands, I commit my spirit. Christ was fulfilling the redemptive plan of his father perfectly, perfectly in every way. And it was then and only then that he committed his spirit back to his father in victory, in victory. Guys, Jesus was not killed by humanity. You need to know that. Man cannot kill God. Jesus Christ laid down his life willingly for the sins of man, John 10, 18. And so the cross, again, this was a cry of victory. This was not a sign of defeat. Remember, what did Jesus tell the women on the way to the cross? Don't weep for me. Do not weep for me. Amen. Weep for your sin. Weep for the unbelievers. Weep for those who are not redeemed, who have not been purchased by the blood of Christ. Right? I mean, the cross, at the cross, Satan. He might have bruised the heel of our Lord. Pardon me. But it was Christ who ultimately crushed the head of his enemy. Way back from Genesis 3.15, when we first see the cross prophesied. I like what Pastor Guzik says here. He says, save your pity for those who reject the complete work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Amen. Save your pity for those preachers who do not have the heart like Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, when he proclaimed that the center of the Christian message is we preach Christ crucified. Amen. Pity those people who do not preach the gospel, especially pastors. Pity those people, the charlatans. Pity those people who don't believe. That's who we should be crying for because Christ is crying from his cross in victory. It is finished. More on the victory next week, no doubt, as we look into the resurrection. Verse 47. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God saying, certainly this was a righteous man. That's right. And Matthew tells us that the centurion also said, truly this was the son of God. That's what he said. He believed. But you know, many times it takes extra things, doesn't it, to get our attention? Sometimes it takes an earthquake. Sometimes it might take a tragedy. Sometimes it might take something supernatural to happen in order to get a person's attention. That's what happened here. At least I think. I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know this. After Christ breathed his last, the centurion believed. Verse 48. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. And so even this crowd, the crowd at large here, they couldn't bear to watch the innocent son of God being brutally and openly crucified. That's how horrible of a scene this was. Verse 49, but all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So again, what's happening? This is a fulfillment of scripture here. Some of Christ's closest Friends, they stayed, but they stayed at a distance. Listen to how specific scripture is. This is a prophecy from Psalm thirty-eight, eleven. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague and my relatives stand afar off. How specific. By the way, his plague, my sin, your sin. That was the plague he was under. But it's interesting to note that the women there, they were some of the last ones to linger at the cross. And as we're going to see, they were also the first ones to the tomb. Verse 50. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. So, what Luke is telling us is that Joseph was actually a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, their ruling council. That's where Joseph um, served, you could say, was on that particular council. But the Bible is clear in telling us that he was a good man, he was a just man, but he was a good man and a just man who was serving in public office. Think about that. We could use a few more of those good and just men, couldn't we? Verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews. So Arimathea was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Luke tells us that he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And so... We have to do our Bible, we have to do our gospel comparison here to really get a better picture of what was likely going on because apparently Joseph wasn't present when the vote was taken to crucify Christ. Remember, we talked about Christ coming before the Sanhedrin and the vote was taken and Mark fourteen sixty four tells us that they all condemned him. Joseph was a member of that group. And so... Apparently, Joseph had found a way to abstain from voting. Now, we know that he was a good man, he was a just man, that he was waiting on the kingdom of God. In fact, John tells us in his gospel, John 19, 38, that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. So he was a disciple. Then he says, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So, could it be that at this point, Joseph had already removed himself from the council, being a disciple of Jesus Christ prior to the vote taking place? That way he would have had time to go and prepare for the burial. If he was a disciple, then it's likely, it's possible anyway, that he, he would have believed what Christ told his disciples, that I'm going to be crucified, that I'm going to be buried that I'm going to raise from the dead. Maybe he believed that. Maybe he left the council early and went gathering these burial supplies because it's not likely that he would have been able to buy anything at Passover. So all I'm saying is, for sure, I don't know. But secondly, it could be that he removed himself from the council early enough in time to get the supplies needed to bury his Lord in whom he believed. It's a possibility, okay? Verse 52, this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So he would have done this between 3 p.m., which would have been after Christ had breathed his last, but before 6 p.m., which would have been sunset. Uh, that's when this would have happened, because at 6 p.m. would be the start of the Sabbath, and they had to be buried before then. Okay, But it seems to me, I don't know if you caught this, but it seems like to me that Joseph's faith was now no longer a secret. John told us that he was a disciple, but secretly. This is not very secretive. Some of the other gospel writers will tell us that Joseph believed that Christ was the son of God. Of course he did if he was a disciple. And of course, from the moment he went from unbelief to belief, that very moment, he would have gone from Judaism to Christianity, wouldn't he? He would now be a Christian. Therefore, he would have had to forfeit his post or his position on the Sanhedrin. In other words, Joseph would have had to leave his old life in pursuit of the new life that he now had in Jesus Christ, his Lord. Amen. And Mark gives us further insight. Mark fifteen forty three tells us that Joseph took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. I like that because what we're learning is that our faith in Jesus Christ, although it's deeply personal, it's never to be private. It's never to be private. At some point, every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will make a public profession of their faith, and that will take courage. Joseph was taking courage. Even Nicodemus, as you do your comparison study of these gospels, you'll see that Nicodemus was there. Nicodemus brought about 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and he actually helped Joseph prepare the body of Christ for burial. That's John nineteen thirty-nine. <laughs> when did Nicodemus first come to Christ? At night. At night. Joseph was a disciple early on, but secretly. Now they're both out front. They're both in public. Guys, the Christian faith was never meant to be lived out in secret. The Christian faith was never to was never meant to be lived out in the shadows. No, it's to be proclaimed in every single facet of our society. And we see those represented here. Our faith is to be proclaimed from the pulpit, quite obviously. Nicodemus represents that. He was a priest, right? Proclaim the truth of God from the pulpit. Our faith is to be. Proclaimed in the city council. Joseph sat on the city council. You know, the ruling council. It's to be proclaimed all the way to the public square, exactly the place where they were standing right now. And it's interesting to me that Nicodemus and Joseph, it seemed like their faith became more public as the other disciples, the other 11, became more private. You ever notice that? I find that interesting. Matthew Henry said something worth quoting he said weeping must not hinder the sowing he's exactly right in other words what he's saying is our sadness our fear our whatever cannot conquer our courage as believers in jesus christ it's interesting how the quietest among us the the quiet ones the introverts it's interesting to me how oftentimes they can also be the most courageous right There was work to be done and Joseph stepped up and done the work. There was work to be done and Nicodemus was there coming out of the shadows of night to do the work. Joseph, Nicodemus, the women, they're all great examples of quiet followers of Christ who now had courage. All quiet followers of Christ must ultimately find within them courage to serve the Lord, to proclaim his truth. The application here is very simple. What is Christ calling me to do? What is an area of my life where I lack courage? Am I still in the shadows? Am I still in secret as a disciple of Christ or have I come out of the shadows quite courageously proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in every facet of my life? In what ways do I need to step up in service to Christ? Did you know that there's another Christian tradition out there? This is not Bible. It's just a Christian tradition. It tells us that it was Joseph of Arimathea, the very one we're talking about now, that first took the gospel of Christ to what we now know is England. Supposedly, he was sent by Philip in AD 61 to go evangelize England. Amazing. Verse 53, then he took it down. Joseph took the body of Christ down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. You've heard me say this before, but Andrew Peterson is one of my favorite all time songwriters. He's a fantastic songwriter. And he has one of the best descriptions, in my opinion, of how Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the body of Christ here for burial. Here's how Andrew Peterson described it. He says, they dressed him like a wound. Hmm. How appropriate. Isaiah 53.5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. Joseph was a rich man. We know that from Matthew 27.57. But what he did was use his wealth for good. Okay, having a ton of money is not in and of itself a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But Joseph was giving. He was not greedy whatsoever. In other words, he used his wealth in service to the Lord. Wealth was something that, that God had blessed him with, and he used that in service to his God. Listen to what Matthew twenty-seven sixty says. It says that it was Joseph who actually hewn out the tomb himself from the rock. Joseph did that. But he was wealthy. Why didn't he just hire it done? Wealthy or not, guys, at some point we all have to get our hands dirty in ministry. We all are called to use what God has given us for his glory. Joseph wasn't too proud. He was humble. He was giving. He wasn't greedy. And so he picked up the tools and he started carving out the cave. he done it himself in service to his Lord. But just as Christ had no place to lay his head, we know that from Luke 9, 58, all during his ministry, he had no home, but neither did he have a place to lay his head in death. And so he was buried in a borrowed tomb, the borrowed tomb of a rich man. Again, this fulfills prophetic scripture. Listen to the text. From Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, right? He was crucified like a criminal. But with the rich at his death. Hmm. Christ, again, fulfilling prophetic scripture. Of course, we know he's not going to need it long. He's borrowing it, right? It won't be long before he walks out of it or walks through it or however he gets out of it. I don't know. Scripture's not clear on how Christ came out, just that he came out. He will not stay in that tomb. He's only borrowing it. Verse 54, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. So preparation day is always Friday, the day before Saturday, the day before the Sabbath. This Sabbath happened to be, or this Friday, I'm sorry, had um, in particular had to be Passover as well. Verse 55, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after and they observed the tomb and how his body laid. This is important, okay? We can learn something here. What does that verse tell us? What does verse 55 say? It tells us that we have eyewitness account. We have eyewitness evidence of the actual death of Christ. The women saw it. They saw that he was dead. Why is that important? Because it defeats a very popular argument from some atheists and other unbelievers out there called the swoon theory i 've talked about this in a previous message, but there 's a theory out there from unbelievers called the swoon theory, and what it, what it says is that christ didn 't really die; he was just unconscious and then woke up in the tomb and so if you can't if you don 't die, then you can 't rise from the dead, and so all of these miracles are fake that 's the swoon theory that 's out there <laughs> of course, he had to literally die in order to literally rise from the dead and we have actual eyewitness accounts at the grave at the cross that tell us that jesus was actually dead just like we have actual eyewitness accounts that jesus actually rose from the dead and we'll talk more about that in a future message as well but we have eyewitness accounts that attest to both the death and resurrection of jesus christ verse 56 Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. So the people, in obedience to the Sabbath, they rested. The Bible says six days you shall labor. The seventh is the Lord. That's Exodus 20, 9 and 10. And so they rested. But what I want you to see is that all of this that's taking place from creation to the cross it's all representative of Christ's redeeming work. Guys, after six days of creation, the Bible declares that God rested. After six hours on the cross, the Bible declares that God rested. Christ's work of salvation was now complete. It was finished. Now the new creation is possible in his blood. The new covenant is now possible in his blood. And so with one final proclamation from his cross, Christ cried out in victory. The word he said was tetelestai. It means paid in full. Your Bible reads, it is finished. It is finished. John nineteen thirty. Then he rested. Then he willingly committed his spirit back to his father. After the completion of of his redemptive work. None of his bones were broken. You know, as you've read your Bible, you have certainly seen that the Passover lamb could not have any broken bones. You can read about that in Exodus 12, Numbers 9, etc. Christ, of course, is the perfect and final Passover lamb. Therefore, his bones were not to be broken. Christ was brutally beaten beyond recognition. Again, his visage marred more than any man. He was deformed, unrecognizable, but yet unbroken. Unbroken. Christ gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. He gave it up. He laid down his life for you and me. There were two other criminals beside him. Both of them had their legs broken. They had to hasten their death in order to get in the grave before Sabbath. But not Christ, right? Psalm 3420 says that he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. And so Christ presented himself perfectly to his father as our substitute, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without blemish slain for our sins brutally beaten but unbroken. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then, don't miss this, then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for their firstborn. There were many, many people there that day looking at the cross of Christ, looking up upon Jesus Christ at his cross. Some of them were grieving. Some of them were still mocking. Some of them were still blaspheming. Yet others, they believed. They believed. And John wrote in his gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he left us these words in John 19.35. After he documented his account of Christ's crucifixion, he said this, And he who has seen has testified. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I'm an eyewitness. I saw this and I'm telling you now that this testimony is true. He says, I know I'm telling the truth. Why? So that you might believe. Amen. You've got an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and to the resurrection of Jesus Christ telling you that all of this happened, that Christ was and is who he says. Why? So you can believe. So you can believe and you can be saved, right? Listen, what do you see when you look at the cross? What do you see when you look on Jesus Christ who was pierced for you? Do you grieve? Are you among that crowd? Are you a mocker? Do you not really believe? Maybe you're still undecided. I don't know, maybe you're just stuck in your unbelief. If that's where you're at today, I want you to take another look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look again. Look at Christ. What do you see? We've been talking about this for two straight weeks now. Based on what you've heard from the text of scripture about what Jesus has done for you and about who he is, what do you see? Do you believe? Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. Not only that, that's what Jesus did. He did that for you. Jesus Christ died for you because he loves you. That's why he did it. Romans 5, 7 through 8 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Don't miss this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love for you on that cross. Listen, Christ knows who you are. He knows intimately who you are. He knows all the sins that only you know. He knows your heart. He knows that you're a sinner. He knows that you've blown it. He knows about all of your indecision and your confusion. He understands that. But listen to me. He died for you anyway. He knows you. He loves you. This is how important you are to Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for you. It's our sin that has separated us from our God. That's what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59 too. But listen to this. We're going to tie all of this together. Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 34 says, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen, and it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. God, the great master designer, artistic. He loves beauty. He loves design. You shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold. The hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil From the clasps. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there behind the veil. Why? Because our sin has separated us from our God. That's why. The veil, Moses writes, shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. There's a wall up between you and God, there's a veil between a holy God and sinful humanity. Then he says in verse 34, Exodus 26, you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. I'm here. Here's the veil. Here's the mercy of my holy God. There's something in between. Listen, Jesus Christ was the veil that was torn in two, giving you access to the mercy seat of God. Listen to the word of God this morning. I'm going to read a portion from Hebrews chapter 10 and then we're done. Listen to what the word of God says. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Did you hear that? Your work cannot accomplish anything as it relates to salvation. For then they would not have ceased, would they not have ceased to be offered, right? If if my sacrifice meant a hill of beans, if it meant anything, at some point, wouldn't I have been able to stop? For the worshipers once purified, who have had no more consciousness of sin, if the sacrifice is Would work if my works would gain me favor with God at some point, I would be actually redeemed and not have any remembrance of sin. But that's not what happened, right? He continues, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. That's right, every year there's a reminder you're a sinner, you're bad, you're doomed every year. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That's right. Therefore, when He, meaning Jesus Christ, when He came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. He's talking to the Father. You had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come in the volume of the book. It's written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin. You did not desire nor had pleasure in them. We don't please God with our good deeds. We can't earn favor ever. These were offered according to the law. And then verse nine, Hebrews 10. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So he takes away the first that he might establish the second. That's right. Christ is the Passover Lamb, the one who fulfilled the law of God quite perfectly, the thing we cannot do. He established the new covenant in his blood. By that, listen, we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Hear this once for all. Once for all. There's no more yearly sacrifice. There's no more yearly reminder. No. Christ was sacrificed for you once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, (laughs) which can never take away sin. But this man, again, talking about Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down at the right hand of God. What did he say from his cross? It is finished. To sit down is a sign of completion. There's no more work for you, for me, for Christ. It's done. The work has been completed. From that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. That's right. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and into their minds. I will write them. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's our Jesus. No more yearly sacrifice. No more yearly reminder. We remember his death. We proclaim his death until he comes through the new covenant, through communion. It was his work. Don't sit there thinking, Jesus Remembers your sin, believer. <laughs> he sets it as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers it no more. Hallelujah. How often do we beat ourselves up about that? Now, the writer of Hebrews says where there is remission of these, where there is remission of sin, where it's been removed, there's no longer an offering for sin. Amen. Therefore, brethren, have an boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You remember there was me. There was the veil. There's a holy God in his mercy seat. The veil was the body of Christ. That's Jesus. He was torn in two. The veil has been removed. And now Jesus is saying, come to the holiest of holies, to the mercy seat of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, come. Come by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Hallelujah. And having a high priest, that's Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, don't doubt, For he who has promised is faithful. There's where you make your stand. Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. He will save those who come to him by faith. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's judgment day. We talked about this. Christ is the veil. He was broken for you. The barrier between you and a holy God is now gone. And he says, come. So come. Because judgment day is coming too. But if we've learned anything over the last couple of weeks, it's this. Jesus Christ was judged for you. Jesus Christ was your substitute. So don't linger any longer in your unbelief. No. Come boldly to the throne of grace by faith in jesus christ repent of your sins believe in the lord jesus christ and be saved and that that might be where you're at maybe you don't know christ and maybe you need to come to him by faith today do that come you've got an opportunity in just a minute to come and give your life to jesus christ maybe you are a believer but maybe you have been in secret like joseph maybe it's time to get some courage Maybe it's time to step out of the shadows, come out of the secret with your faith and begin living in the light of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's where you're at today. Whatever it is, just listen to the Lord as we pray and we're going to sing another song together. And as we do that, just say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for your cross. We have no hope without it. All of us stand condemned and under the wrath of a Holy God for our sin. But you stood as our substitute and absorbed every ounce of the Father's wrath. You are our propitiation, which means satisfaction. Your sacrifice was accepted by the Holy Father. So now we can come and we come by grace through faith. No more work. The work is finished. You sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's over. The victory has been won. So my prayer, Lord, is if someone is hearing this message and they have not turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ alone by faith, believing that he is the son of God who died on the cross for their sin and rose again from that grave so that they could have the same hope of resurrection, the same hope the thief had. I pray that they would believe that today, that today would be the day of their salvation. If there are believers who hear this and they've been in secret, they've been in the shadows, I pray that they would come out and proclaim boldly the name of Jesus to their family, to their coworkers, to their community. Give us courage to do that, Lord. Please have your way. We love you and we praise you and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.